August. Durleth. August. So, hey, here we are at the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, etc. of August. The second half of August. Here we are. We've got some Donald Wandry. We've got some August Durleth. And uh, do you know something that August Durleth published for Arkham House back in the day? Camilla. Andrew Grace and some other folks talking about Camilla in the future coming up on the show and also going to be doing another one of our writer talks where we talk to writer Zach Ferguson again. You might remember him from an episode of People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos where he talks about uh, Fritz Lang and another one. He talked about Ramsey Campbell way back when and we've had him on here and there. And anyway, Zach will be joining us later this month. And thank you again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. I'm your host, D.B. Spitzer. This is a daily podcast where you get to listen to a chapter of a short story or a chapter of a horror story or gothic story or anything like that. Folklore, one day at a time. Here are a couple of stories, 20 minutes at least, you know, something to something to keep you going on your commute, your flight, your, your travels, your uh, daily bits and whatnot that you do to keep sane and, well, I don't know, doing dishes or... I don't know, maybe maybe it's something you like to do when you're barbecuing like me. I like to listen to various podcasts like Ken and Robin talk about stuff in Harmontown when I'm barbecuing out in the backyard. Uh, fun stuff. Anyway, so if you want to keep this podcast going and People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos and us uh, exploring weird fiction and all that kind of fun stuff, be sure to check out pgttcm.podbean.com and become a patron. Not Patreon. We don't go with Patreon. Or you can go to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donate whatever you think is going to help us keep going. If you want to do it on a regular basis, that's great. If you want to just do a one-time thing, that's cool too. And if you don't want to send us money, you just want something cool in return, go to threadless.com. Look for pgttcm slash dot i don't know which one it is but just look for pgttcm on threadless dot and get a shirt get a tote bag whatever it helps support the show and keeps us going we've got some cool designs up right now for logos for the show we've got cthulhu designs we've got various weird fiction authors and horror authors uh t-shirt designs and got a new ratfink inspired uh Sathagwa t-shirt up there right now and All right, thank you so much, and remember to rate, review, subscribe wherever you rate, review, and subscribe. Carmilla by J. Sheridan LeFanu Chapter 7 Descending It would be vain my attempting to tell you the horror with which, even now, I recall the occurrence of that night. It was no such transitory terror as a dream leaves behind it. It seemed to deepen by time, and communicated itself to the room and the very furniture that had encompassed the apparition. I could not bear next day to be alone for a moment. I should have told Papa, but for two opposite reasons. At one time I thought he would laugh at my story, and I could not bear its being treated as a jest, and at another— I thought he might fancy that I had been attacked by the mysterious complaint which had invaded our neighborhood. 
I had myself no misgiving of the kind. And as he had been rather an invalid for some time, I was afraid of alarming him. I was comfortable enough with my good-natured companions, Madame Perrodon and the vivacious Mademoiselle Lafontaine. They both perceived that I was out of spirits and nervous, and at length I told them what lay so heavy at my heart. Mademoiselle laughed, but I fancied that Madame Perrodon looked anxious. "'By the by,' said Mademoiselle, laughing, "'the long lime-tree walk behind Carmilla's bedroom window is haunted.' "'Nonsense!' exclaimed Madame, who probably thought the theme rather inopportune. "'And who tells that story, my dear?' "'Martin says he came up twice, when the old yard-gate was being repaired before sunrise, and twice saw the same female figure walking down the lime-tree avenue. "'So well he might, as long as there are cows to milk in the river-fields,' said Madame. "'I dare say, but Martin chooses to be frightened, and never did I see fool more frightened.' "'You must not say a word about it to Carmilla, because she can see down that walk from her room-window,' I interposed. And she is, if possible, a greater coward than I. Carmilla came down rather later than usual that day. "'I was so frightened last night,' she said, so soon as we were together. "'And I am sure I should have seen something dreadful, if it had not been for that charm I bought from the poor little hunchback who I called such hard names. I had a dream of something black coming round my bed, and I awoke in perfect horror, and I really thought, for some seconds, I saw a dark figure near the chimney-piece. But I felt under my pillow for my charm, and the moment my fingers touched it, the figure disappeared, and I felt quite certain, only that I had it by me, that something frightful would have made its appearance, and perhaps throttled me as it did those poor people we heard of. "'Well, listen to me,' I began and recounted my adventure, at the recital of which she appeared horrified. "'And had you the charm near you?' she asked earnestly. "'No, I had dropped it into a china vase in the drawing-room, but I shall certainly take it with me to-night, as you have so much faith in it. At this distance of time I cannot tell you, or even understand, how I overcame my horror so effectually as to lie alone in my room that night.' I remember distinctly that I pinned the charm to my pillow. I fell asleep almost immediately, and slept even more soundly than usual all night. Next night I passed as well. My sleep was delightfully deep and dreamless. But I wakened with a sense of lassitude and melancholy, which, however, did not exceed a degree that was almost luxurious. Well, I told you so said Carmilla, when I described my night's sleep. I had such delightful sleep myself last night. I pinned the charm to the breast of my nightdress. It was too far away the night before. I am quite sure it was all fancy, except the dreams. I used to think that evil spirits made dreams, but our doctor told me it is no such thing. Only a fever passing by, or some other malady, as they often do, he said, knocks at the door, and not being able to get in, passes on, with that alarm. "'And what do you think the charm is?' said I. 
It has been fumigated or immersed in some drug, and is an antidote against the malaria, she answered. Then it acts only on the body? Certainly. You don't suppose that evil spirits are frightened by bits of ribbon, or the perfumes of a druggist's shop? No, these complaints, wandering in the air, begin by trying the nerves, and so infect the brain. But before they can seize upon you, the antidote repels them. That, I am sure, is what the charm has done for us. It is nothing magical. It is simply natural. I should have been happier if I could quite have agreed with Carmilla. But I did my best— and the impression was a little losing its force. For some nights I slept profoundly, but still every morning I felt the same lassitude, and a languor weighed upon me all day. I felt myself a changed girl. A strange melancholy was stealing over me, a melancholy that I would not have interrupted. Dim thoughts of death began to open— and an idea that I was slowly sinking took gentle and somehow not unwelcome possession of me. If it was sad, the tone of mind which this induced was also sweet. Whatever it might be, my soul acquiesced in it. I would not admit that I was ill. I would not consent to tell my papa, or to have the doctor sent for. Carmilla became more devoted to me than ever— and her strange paroxysms of languid adoration more frequent. She used to gloat on me with increasing ardor, the more my strength and spirits waned. This always shocked me, like a momentary glare of insanity. Without knowing it, I was now in a pretty advanced stage of the strangest illness under which mortal ever suffered— there was an unaccountable fascination in its earlier symptoms that more than reconciled me to the incapacitating effect of that stage of the malady. This fascination increased for a time, until it reached a certain point, when gradually a sense of the horrible mingled itself with it, deepening, as you shall hear, until it discolored and perverted the whole state of my life. The first change I experienced was rather agreeable. It was very near the turning-point from which began the descent of Avernus. Certain vague and strange sensations visited me in my sleep. The prevailing one was of that pleasant, peculiar, cold thrill which we feel in bathing, when we move against the current of a river. This was soon accompanied by dreams that seemed interminable and were so vague that I could never recollect their scenery and persons, or any one connected portion of their action. But they left an awful impression, and a sense of exhaustion, as if I had passed through a long period of great mental exertion and danger. After all these dreams there remained on waking a remembrance of having been in a place very nearly dark, and of having spoken to people whom I could not see, and especially of one clear voice, of a female's, very deep, that spoke as if at a distance, slowly, and producing always the same sensation of indescribable solemnity and fear. 
Sometimes there came a sensation, as if a hand was drawn softly along my cheek and neck. Sometimes it was as if warm lips kissed me, and longer, and longer, and more lovingly as they reached my throat. But there the caress fixed itself. My heart beat faster. My breathing rose and fell rapidly, and full-drawn. A sobbing that rose into a sense of strangulation supervened and turned into a dreadful convulsion in which my senses left me, and I became unconscious. It was now three weeks since the commencement of this unaccountable state. My sufferings had, during the last week, told upon my appearance. I had grown pale. My eyes were dilated and darkened underneath and the languor which I had long felt began to display itself in my countenance. My father asked me often whether I was ill, but with an obstinacy which now seems to me unaccountable, I persisted in assuring him that I was quite well. In a sense this was true. I had no pain. I could complain of no bodily derangement. My complaint seemed to be one of the imagination, or the nerves. And horrible as my sufferings were, I kept them, with a morbid reserve, very nearly to myself. It could not be that terrible complaint which the peasants called the oopire, for I had now been suffering for three weeks, and they were seldom ill for much more than three days, when death put an end to their miseries. Carmilla complained of dreams and feverish sensations, but by no means of so alarming a kind as mine. I say that mine were extremely alarming. Had I been capable of comprehending my condition, I would have invoked aid and advice on my knees. The narcotic of an unsuspected influence was acting upon me, and my perceptions were benumbed. I am going to tell you now of a dream that led immediately to an odd discovery. One night, instead of the voice I was accustomed to hear in the dark, I heard one, sweet and tender, and at the same time terrible, which said, Your mother warns you to be aware of the assassin. At the same time a light unexpectedly sprang up, and I saw Carmilla, standing near the foot of my bed in her white nightdress, bathed from her chin to her feet in one great stain of blood. I wakened with a shriek, possessed with the idea that Carmilla was being murdered. I remember springing from my bed, and my next recollection is that of standing on the lobby crying for help. Madame and Mademoiselle came scurrying out of their rooms in alarm. A lamp burned always on the lobby, and seeing me, they soon learned the cause of my terror. I insisted on our knocking at Carmilla's door. Our knocking was unanswered. It soon became a pounding and an uproar. We shrieked her name, but all was vain. We all grew frightened, for the door was locked. We hurried back in panic to my room. There we rang the bell long and furiously. If my father's room had been at that side of the house, we would have called him up at once to our aid. But alas, he was quite out of hearing, and to reach him involved an excursion for which we none of us had courage. Servants, however, soon came running up the stairs. I had got on my dressing-gown and slippers, meanwhile, and my companions were already similarly furnished. Recognizing the voices of the servants on the lobby, we sallied out together. 
and having renewed as fruitlessly our summons at Carmilla's door, I ordered the men to force the lock. They did so, and we stood, holding our lights aloft in the doorway, and so stared into the room. We called her by name, but there was still no reply. We looked round the room. Everything was undisturbed. It was exactly in the state in which I had left it on bidding her good-night. But Carmilla was gone. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to Black Clock Audio Tales. And remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you rate, review, and subscribe. Help support the show so that we don't have to have advertisements from other people, or even us even, by going to pgttcm.threadless.com and picking up a t-shirt or two, or you can always go to paypal.me slash pgttcm and donating a couple of dollars, or going to pgttcm.podbean.com and joining our patron program. And, all right, thank you so much, and back to the story. Carmilla by J. Sheridan Lefanu Read by Elizabeth Clett Chapter 8 Search At sight of the room, perfectly undisturbed except for our violent entrance, we began to cool a little, and soon recovered our senses sufficiently to dismiss the men. It had struck Mademoiselle that possibly Carmilla had been wakened by the uproar at her door, and in her first panic had jumped from her bed, and hid herself in a press, or behind a curtain, from which she could not, of course, emerge until the major-domo and his myrmidons had withdrawn. We now recommenced our search, and began to call her name again. It was all to no purpose. Our perplexity and agitation increased. We examined the windows, but they were secured. I implored of Carmilla, if she had concealed herself, to play this cruel trick no longer, to come out and to end our anxieties. It was all useless. I was by this time convinced that she was not in the room, nor in the dressing-room, the door of which was still locked on this side. She could not have passed it. I was utterly puzzled. Had Carmilla discovered one of those secret passages which the old housekeeper said were known to exist in the Schloss, although the tradition of their exact situation had been lost? A little time would, no doubt, explain all, utterly perplexed as for the present we were. It was past four o'clock, and I preferred passing the remaining hours of darkness in Madame's room. Daylight brought no solution of the difficulty. The whole household, with my father at his head, was in a state of agitation next morning. Every part of the chateau was searched. The grounds were explored. No trace of the missing lady could be discovered. The stream was about to be dragged. My father was in distraction. What a tale to have to tell the poor girl's mother on her return! I, too, was almost beside myself, though my grief was of quite a different kind. The morning was passed in alarm and excitement. It was now one o'clock and still no tidings. I ran up to Carmilla's room, and found her standing at her dressing-table. I was astounded. I could not believe my eyes. She beckoned to me with her pretty finger in silence. Her face expressed extreme fear. I ran to her in an ecstasy of joy. I kissed and embraced her again and again. 
I ran to the bell and rang it vehemently to bring others to the spot who might at once relieve my father's anxiety. "'Dear Carmilla, what has become of you all this time? We have been in agonies of anxiety about you,' I exclaimed. "'Where have you been? How did you come back?' "'Last night has been a night of wonders,' she said. "'For mercy's sake, explain all you can.' "'It was past two last night,' she said. When I went to sleep as usual in my bed, with my doors locked, that of the dressing-room and that opening upon the gallery. My sleep was uninterrupted, and, so far as I know, dreamless. But I woke just now on the sofa in the dressing-room there, and I found the door between the rooms open, and the other door forced. How could all this have happened without my being wakened? It must have been accompanied with a great deal of noise, and I am particularly easily wakened. And how could I have been carried out of my bed without my sleep having been interrupted, I whom the slightest stir startles? By this time, madame, mademoiselle, my father, and a number of the servants were in the room. Carmilla was, of course, overwhelmed with inquiries, congratulations, and welcomes. She had but one story to tell, and seemed the least able of all the party to suggest any way of accounting for what had happened. My father took a turn up and down the room, thinking— I saw Carmilla's eye follow him for a moment, with a sly, dark glance. When my father had sent the servants away, Mademoiselle having gone in search of a little bottle of valerian, and sal volatile, and there being no one now in the room with Carmilla, except my father, Madame, and myself, he came to her thoughtfully, took her hand very kindly, and led her to the sofa and sat down beside her. "'Will you forgive me, my dear, if I risk a conjecture and ask a question?' "'Who can have better right?' she said. "'Ask what you please, and I will tell you everything. "'But my story is simply one of bewilderment and darkness. "'I know absolutely nothing. "'Put any question you please, but you know, of course, the limitations Mama has placed me under.' "'Perfectly, my dear child. "'I need not approach the topics on which she desires our silence.' Now, the marvel of last night consists in your having been removed from your bed and your room, without being wakened, and this removal having occurred apparently while the windows were still secured, and the two doors locked upon the inside. I will tell you my theory, and ask you a question. Carmilla was leaning on her hand dejectedly. Madame and I were listening breathlessly. Now my question is this. Have you ever been suspected of walking in your sleep? Never, since I was very young, indeed. But you did walk in your sleep when you were young? Yes, I know I did. I have been told so often by my old nurse. My father smiled and nodded. Well, what has happened is this. You got up in your sleep, unlocked the door, not leaving the key, as usual, in the lock, but taking it out and locking it on the outside. You again took the key out, and carried it away with you to some one of the five-and-twenty rooms on this floor, or perhaps upstairs or downstairs. There are so many rooms and closets, so much heavy furniture, and such accumulations of lumber that it would require a week to search this old house thoroughly. Do you see now what I mean? I do, but not all, she answered. And how, Papa, do you account for her finding herself on the sofa in the dressing-room, which we had searched so carefully? 
She came there after you had searched it, still in her sleep, and at last awoke spontaneously, and was as much surprised to find herself where she was as anyone else. "'I wish all mysteries were as easily and innocently explained as yours, Carmilla,' he said, laughing. "'And so we may congratulate ourselves on the certainty that the most natural explanation of the occurrence is one that involves no drugging, no tampering with locks, no burglars or poisoners or witches, nothing that need alarm Carmilla or anyone else for our safety.' Carmilla was looking charmingly. Nothing could be more beautiful than her tints. Her beauty was, I think— enhanced by that graceful languor that was peculiar to her. I think my father was silently contrasting her looks with mine, for he said, I wish my poor Laura was looking more like herself. And he sighed. So our alarms were happily ended, and Carmilla restored to her friends. Thanks again for listening, everyone. I've been your host, D.B. Spitzer. And music by, well, me this time around. The the chimes, that's like audio that I picked up in my backyard and just incorporated. And hey, and I, I like it. Anyway, yeah, so thank you for listening. Join us tomorrow when we have more of this. So it's either another story or a chapter of Camilla or a couple chapters of Camilla or it's someone talking about Camilla. Maybe it's writer Zach Ferguson. Who knows? All right. This is August Derleth August. And thank you so much. This is People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I mean, Black Clock Audio Tales. People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos is our Cthulhu-themed show that happens the last Tuesday of the month. And all right. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening. Tell your friends about it and help us grow as a show. All right. Thank you so much. Have a good day.